0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Brian Buma, Ph.D., author and professor. He's the author of The Atlas of a Changing Climate. Climate change, shrinking wildlife habitats, rising sea levels, and vanishing species are big, important ideas that deserve a proper exploration. National Geographic Explorer, Brian Buma, PhD, lucidly pairs the science of climate change with maps, infographics, and charts that make the complex information not only comprehensible, but compelling. This approach illustrates multifaceted ecological change with scientific clarity and aesthetic appeal in equal measure. Nature itself charts the course with chapters devoted to atmosphere, water, land, wildlife, and urban ecology. He tells a larger story about what drives environmental change, outlining the historical developments behind each topic and detailing their current state and possible future. Take this incredible journey and be inspired to act as an environmental steward to your everyday life. Uh, Brian is an assistant professor of integrative biology at the University of Colorado, Denver. Welcome to the show, Brian. Nice to have you on today.
1: Yeah, thanks so much. Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Okay. Well, that's the introduction, but I've also heard that you like to tell interesting stories to the public about the natural world. And I guess my question is, how do you make climate change interesting? We used to call it global warming. <laughs> Nobody wanted to hear about that climate change. Okay. we'll listen, but you know, it's, it's not sexy. So it's make it true. interesting for us.
1: <laughs> it's true. And, um, You know, I've been I've been all over um, the country and all over the world, and and talked to a lot of folks. And it seems like the reason it's not not sexy, it's the reason it it can be a little um, bit of a drone for a lot of folks, is that climate operates and environmental systems operate on a scale that's just totally um, sort of divorced from our own experience right like we're small critters we're like you know a little under six feet tall we can see about 30 square miles on flat ground you know the world is is um, six million times bigger in terms of area so it's no wonder we have a hard time like thinking about this and getting it and really understanding it but i think it's beautiful like uh, the the way the climate works the way ecosystems work at the scale of the globe it's gorgeous so i always have this feeling that we're like ants in a cathedral you know (laughs) like we can see the stuff around us and it's nice and everything but we're missing this bigger picture that you know not all of us are fortunate enough to get to see it like i feel i'm really lucky to get to study and work on questions that are this big but not not everyone can and so that was the that was the point of this book was to take um, the stories of the world like at the scale it deserves to be talked about you know so like hemispheres and and the way our air comes over from china and and the way that uh the winds circle the southern uh circle antarctica um or the way things have developed over the last 300 years like take those really beautiful stories and translate them into um visuals so just gorgeous imagery because you need it i mean at least i need to see visuals and 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 cool maps to be able to understand these sorts of things as well as you know sort of down-to-earth anecdotes and stories that that relate it to daily life so there's stories in there um from my work in alaska and southern chile um near the near the drake passage um, as well as some stuff from europe there's stories of like the, the 1927 floods in mississippi valley which inspired um you know a whole genre of music like so there's a led zeppelin song in there <laughs> there's all sorts of fun little stories because they all really do connect to climate change and so if folks think that it's some big out there problem or some big problem for the future you know that's uh, that that's wrong but i understand why that mistake is made and it's because it's a, it's just because it's just such a vastly different scale from our experience and so the point here is to take our experiences and show how they link to the bigger picture. Like on every page, you're going to see like, oh, I'm, I'm there, but I'm affected by everything, you know, a thousand miles away. And I'm affecting things a thousand miles away. Myself.
0: I think that's really so, critical. Yeah. And because uh, climate change now, it is compelling. We need to do something about it. I think, uh, we have to make certain changes. I don't know in our behavior as individuals, but also as communities and governments. And uh, our brains are not really hardwired to They're think not. long-term <laughs> about if we, in terms of, if we don't deal with it, what's going to happen to us. And and I think that's, that's why your book is really important to say what happens in China also happens here, not just in our small communities. And yeah. uh, I think, yeah.
1: And you're absolutely right. Yeah. Our, our brains, we have ancient brains, right? Like we have, yeah brains that, that are developed for thinking over the scale of maybe a year and the scale of you know predators around us and our local family group. Like that makes perfect sense. I don't, I don't fault folks for not like necessarily um, thinking broad scale and long term, like we're just not set up for that. So we need tools to do it. And I think that's, um, where the imagery comes in, you know, it's over half imagery because otherwise it's just really hard to conceptualize. And that's also where the time component comes in too, right? You mentioned thinking about China as a far, as a long ways away, you know, in this, at the scale of the world, it's not, it's like the next step over for all our weather. But the same thing could be said for time. You know, a lot of our, like I work, I was just talking on a call yesterday, a research call for this project. And we're talking about how far out we should model um, the landscape, landscape change. And, and, 2100 came up. It's a very common date that we use to model things, like the year 2100. That sounds like a long time, right? That sounds like a long time to me anyway. <laughs> I'm not going to make it that far. Yeah. Uh, but people alive today will. Right? It's not that far away. It's literally the generation that's living right now are going to see it. You know, I mean, someone, uh, a five-year-old kid today has a pretty darn good chance of seeing 2100 and living with climate change in 2100.
0: Don't so they say the kids the who, are now, who are born now, who are born today country? or in this year, that are this, yeah, I think it is this year, Should li- will live to be 110 or 106, yeah. that that'll be the average lifespan? But I want to ask you well, something you else, go. Brian, because <laughs> climate change is so. Pol- been so politicized. Uh, there are people who yeah. saying it doesn't exist. Well, it's been changing, as you say in your book and as we've been t- talking about this since the world began, right? So no, sure. It's not. I want you to address this because it's, it's here, whether people like it or not. The sea is rising. You can measure it. It's science. But what mm-hmm. we do about it has become politicized, or if we do anything, because we yeah. don't want to have the country, mudslides and hurricanes and extreme kinds of uh, climate, you know, uh, from, you know, hurricanes to droughts to, you know, extreme rainfall. What Mm -hmm. could, you know, as, yeah, what do we, can you resolve that for us?
1: (laughs) That's a big question. (laughs) Um, You're right, it has become politicized, and I think that's, it's very unfortunate. Um, The book is not, this book is not meant to be Alarmist or tell people what to do. Uh, There's a lot of books that do that, and as you say, it's become political. They don't work all that well because now it comes down to your political leanings, which is which is really unfortunate because the basic science, like the basic phenomenon, is not under debate and never has been. Um, So the point of the book really is to give folks without a scientific background. You don't need a science degree to understand this. This was explicitly written for folks. That haven't had, um, you know, a science. That haven't taken a science degree or something, because most people haven't, and most people shouldn't. We don't need more scientists necessarily. Um, it's it's for those folks because I want to get, show them that the science is pretty, like the phenomenon, the chemistry is really pretty straightforward, and it's not it's not under debate. And and like I said, never has been. People calculated the effect of global, of adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere in the 1800s, in 1896. Svante Arrhenius, this um, uh, scientist in Europe, calculated how much the Earth would warm if we doubled CO two, and he wasn't even off by very much. And this is in 1896, so this isn't unusual. and And yes, climate has changed in the past, and I think that's a great that's a great point. Like people need to know that it's changed dramatically in the past, but it hasn't changed this fast for one thing. So the rate is something that's a concern. Uh, because we have to adapt to this change. And, and so we need to be concerned about how fast it's changing relative to our ability to adapt. You know, when California dries out and you can't grow crops there anymore, what are we going to do? Do we have enough time to shift? We, we probably don't, That's <laughs> the rate we're going. The second is the, mechan- the way it's changed in the past is essentially what we're doing now. It, it, for the most part, a lot of the change in the past has been a function of how much CO2 is in the atmosphere. And now we're just adding more. So that's not controversial either. You know, it's not like the current thing disagrees with the past thing. So it's, it's unfortunate it's become political, like thinking it exists or not, because there's no, there's nothing complicated there. Like anyone can do little experiments, put more CO2 in a bottle and it'll warm up. Like <laughs> It's yes. not, it's not, uh, it, it's not complicated. Now what we do about it. Yeah. That, that is essentially a, a, a becomes a political question. Um, Can we get back to maybe something in
0: the middle? Like, we know that it exists, okay, Uh, and doing something about it is on the other end. How about let's talk about what the impact of it existing and the seas rising and pollution in the air and all of the things that have emerged from climate change, whether, I guess, whether man-made or just natural
1: yeah, I mean, uh, so sea level is a great example of something we're going to have to deal with. And again, this was kind of the point of the book was to just show people what's happening without telling them what to do or without telling them to be sort of alarmed by it, because I think that happens naturally. <laughs> There's plenty of things <laughs> to be alarmed about, and I don't need to tell you to be alarmed about it. Once you understand what's going on, you're like, oh, we better think about this. So sea level is a great ex- is a great example. Uh, because the sea, sea level rise is um, about um, three, well, 3.7 millimeters. So we're looking at, um, you know, a couple inches uh, or an inch every decade or so, which is faster than any time in the last 3,000 years. Uh, and what that means is we're going to see one to three feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. Again, people who are alive today are going to see seas one to three to maybe four feet higher. And those, that's the middle, middle um middle of the range it could potentially be up to six feet by 2100 and what does that mean well miami-dade county for example one of the one of the largest uh, cities in the country and a huge amount of economic um uh resources uh miami-dade county is six feet above the highest point is six feet above sea level so like this isn't this isn't um it, it's not rocket science to think this could be a problem right like you have an ocean that's going to flood one of our largest cities Plus, add on, you know, storm surges and things like that, which already flood the area, and this is happening everywhere in the world. Shanghai and China. What, what's China going to do when they're one of their largest cities essentially gets flooded? Um, uh, countries in India with with uh, almost a billion people. Like it's sea level rise is something that um, could happen over the next two thousand years. We could be looking at two to three meters, so six to nine feet of warming, if warming's limited to one point five degrees Celsius, which is what the recent um, uh, conference was about, so we're looking at uh, exceptional amounts of sea level rise, and most of humanity lives within you know fairly close to the ocean. So that thing right there should tell folks we have to plan for this. You know, we have to do something, um, or we're really going to have to do something later. You know, or we're just we're just digging a bigger hole uh, for ourselves later, and. Unfortunately, we're already locked into a couple feet of sea level rise. Um, we've added so much energy to the energy to the ocean, and we've set up such an energy imbalance, um, meaning more energy is going in than leaving, that we're stuck with several feet of sea level rise already. The question is, how much more um, will we pile on? And and, and you so can in, you can trace that. I was going to ask you because weather. in
0: terms of the do. impact. So let's mm-hmm. the sea, you, really, uh, you know, you've told us how, how, you know, how much the sea is rising, uh, then does that mean that groups of people will migrate? Everyone's going to leave Miami and go to Chicago? Or, <laughs> I mean, I mean that's,
1: that can happen, yeah. right? Like, yeah. unless we all get on boats like Kevin Costner in Waterworld, we're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's, there's a couple options, right? We could, people could move. You know, because because Miami uh, will be mostly under the ocean. Um, uh, New Orleans will be in similar boats. Many coastal cities will be in similar boats, at least on our edges. Um, we could migrate. We could spend billions and billions on seawalls. I mean, I suppose there's engineering options, too. Uh, but climate refugees are not uh, a theoretical construct. We already have migrations happening because of droughts. Uh, where land and agriculture is simply not sustainable anymore. So we will probably see mass relocations of people to get away from rising sea levels um, and presumably shifting precipitation patterns. So I mean, there's a, this, this is going to happen. Uh, already some of it's going to happen. Like I said, action should have been taken 30 years ago, but it wasn't. But we can, we can start planning for that, but we can also mitigate it a little bit if we, if we do something now.
0: If we talk to people about finances, because, you know, when it affects their pocketbook, because it seems to me the extremes of of climate, you know, whether we have a drought, and I mentioned that earlier, or whether we just have, you know, hurricanes and rain, and we go from one extreme to the next, it costs us, you talk about billions of dollars, billions and trillions of dollars, just in terms of all these disasters that have been happening, that we can we can see it now. I mean, it's it is in our hometown. And, uh, um, did you think that will encourage people to, well, think about it more like reading your book, for instance, but, and doing something about it?
1: I mean, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, many, many, and, and this again was the, the point of the book, um, wasn't to necessarily tell people, you know, preach to people and say, you know you should be afraid because this is going to affect your pocketbook it was to say this is what's happening and then i you know readers will uh, ma- be able to make that connection automatically right they're like when you look at a map there's this beautiful map from national geographic in there um, showing um, uh, the losses in 2050 um, if sea level rises uh, oh, well with when sea level rises to that high and we're looking at 276 278 billion in Miami, much less anywhere else. And so anyway, it doesn't, and you don't have to live in Miami to get that point, right? Like if you're living on the coast, sea level rise becomes a major, major issue. Um, if you're living in an area that's drying out or an area like with wildfires. So California had 3 million acres burned this year. If you're living in the woods in California and you see that, um, and, and you, and you see the, the imagery, which shows like this place will dry, will dry out further. It's already dry. Uh, I don't need to tell you to be worried about wildfires. Like, right? Like people aren't dumb. They'll figure that out. They just need the context to make those decisions. And when you start looking at the scale of the world, it's shocking how big it is, how much, uh, how many people live in sea level, uh, rise threatened areas, um, especially in Asia, but increasingly so in Africa as those areas get bigger. But then of course, in, in the States, um, you know, it's it's not. I don't. I don't need to. Yeah, I, I don't think anyone needs to tell folks that. I think they just need to realize the scale of what's going on.
0: Brian, what about climate change and the transmission of the coronavirus? Has does it affect the transmission of the corona? It would seem to me it would.
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and I, and I can't speak to that too much because obviously we're still still in the middle of it. Um, uh, but you know, the, there is depending on where, you know, these diseases came from. Um, and, of course, that's still under debate, but we can just talk more generally about uh, animal-to-human uh, disease transmission, which does happen um, from time to time, regardless of the origins of the coronavirus specifically, because we probably won't know that for a while. Um, as population goes up, but as species get moved around, uh, as the climate shifts, we're going to have more novel interactions, new interactions with um New species in new ways, and so I don't see how that could. <laughs> I, I see how that would increase the chance of new diseases emerging um, as new interactions, new ecosystems develop. You know, like this is essentially, and this is near the end of the book. We talk about when talk about life and show a lot of migration routes and how species move. We're scrambling a lot of species ranges. You know, a lot of a lot of species won't. They want to live, too. They're not just going to sit there and die. They're going to try and migrate, move, and find new habitats and things. And so we're essentially scrambling up uh, ecosystems in a lot of ways and creating a lot of new interactions between um, species, and we're one of them. And so certainly there is the potential for more, uh, more disease transmission uh, or novel disease emergence as we sort of mess with those historical um, ecosystems.
0: Yeah. So it's not specifically related to the coronaviruses, just in general, when you move well, people I'm around. Be and be careful. It, yeah. I just want
1: to be careful at not being a disease scientist. You know, I, uh, scientists tend to be a conservative bunch. You know, you want to be real careful about what you say because you don't ever want to overstate the problem. And in some ways, for climate change, I, you know, that some have argued that that's served us poorly, you know, because oftentimes what folks see are sort of the middle of the road projections because no one wants to be the one that shouts some extreme change because anything you say is is scrutinized. And so you want to be real careful with what you say. So, you know, I don't want to say too much about the coronavirus because we're in the middle, middle of it. You know, we don't, we're still learning a lot, but as people in the summers crowd into air conditioned areas and as in the winters, if you have to go into heated areas, you know, as we start to get these more extreme, um, weather events, whether heat or cold, it's obviously mostly heat, but occasionally there's some weird new cold events as, as air moves around. Um, you know, obviously that increases chances of transmission as well.
0: So this is back to the, I guess, back to the, the monetary part of this. Um, what how expensive is climate change well it, it, how expensive would it be to fix i mean we're talking we have to do something now we have to read your book understand that there is an issue there is a problem and then we i think we do have to go to next and decide what we're going to do so don't we don't obliterate the east and west coast we'll take those for example or the south um, but how expensive is pe- how expensive Will it be for us to be able to do that?
1: Yeah, and I think there's. It's important whenever you have a, those are good conversations. It's a great question. It, it really is, and something people need to think about. But I, I do think you also always have to introduce it with the caveat of how expensive would it be to fix, but how expensive will it be to ignore? Uh, and we touched on that earlier in the sense of Miami's looking at 278 billion dollars worth of assets in in an exposed area um the new york area is 209 billion like we're looking at an immense amount of money either way like it's too late to just say well how much would it cost to fix and then we avoid all these problems it's what are we going to spend money on are we going to spend money reacting and um, recovering and moving people around or are we going to try and spend money to save what we have in place um, and a lot of it doesn't have to be that expensive In fact, a lot of it's behavioral. Um, So people can choose to live lives which have a much lower carbon footprint. And if a few billion people around the world choose to do that, all of a sudden we've made a big impact without a lot of economic investment. So, um, uh, And what I mean by simple things, which may not seem simple, but simple things, and I know this gets a bad reaction, so I always hesitate to to say it, uh, especially in the U.S., but just eat less meat. You know, like, just by doing that, we lower our carbon footprint dramatically. Uh, fly less. Think, like, take make different choices about transportation options. And all that's free. And that actually can do quite a bit. And, um, you know, most, a lot of pollution comes from corporations that, that are moving goods around the world, shipping and sorts of things. But if we change their, our behavior, they'll change theirs as well. Um, now we can do top-down sorts of things. We can increase things like carbon taxes as well. You know that would cost money, um, but we can do that, and that has been proven to be effective. There's other cool technological stuff coming online. The, uh, there's this new uh, carbon capture direct. It's called direct air carbon capture. So there, it's a it's a uh, factory uh in iceland there's actually a couple other ones this is just the biggest one i just opened um in iceland which actually pulls carbon dioxide out of the air and injects it into uh, into the ground where it essentially turns into stone um so it's a way of like literally pulling carbon dioxide out of the air right now it's pretty darn expensive it's something like 600 to 800 dollars per ton of carbon dioxide which is you know astronaut which just won't work at that scale that's just too expensive. But it's the beginnings of a new technology that, you know, if we invest in these sorts of things, we could potentially um, have one more tool in our toolbox for removing carbon dioxide directly
0: from the air. Planting and I think trees that people's attitude as people individuals, and I'll even speak for myself, I say, well, the yep. government's going to do it. I, you know, I have my kids are saying, you need to get an electric car. What are you driving a car? gas, you know, guzzling car for, (laughs) and uh, I have my excuses, and and then I, yeah, and flying, you mentioned (laughs) flying, stop flying, I love to fly, and fly around the world, which gives me some insight into what the world is like, so that I'm not so myopic when it comes to climate change, (laughs) Um, so it's a, and you also fly, I mean didn't
1: you I do I do <laughs> yeah. it's, it's one of it's one of the things that I'm very conflicted about you know you have to decide whether the the cost of um and I mean environmental cost of of what you do is worth it you know um, and I don't think I can make that decision for everyone like I said I, I I stopped eating meat I don't eat meat anymore and the reason for that is it's something I can do uh, easily, but I still do fly, and and I am fully open to criticisms. There, you, I sort of have to believe that the research I can do and the stories I can tell can tell offset that cost. Uh, but I'm, I, I think all of us need to always be open to criticism uh, and rethinking how, how and what we do, you know, um, in terms of living our lives because. Yeah, we, it's tempting to say the government will do it, but what's the government but essentially a collection of, of people, you know, and so I I, I cringe a little bit uh, when I see these things on social media about these large corporations being the ones responsible for all the climate change, which is sort of true, but it's also passing the buck because they're responding to our consumer-driven uh, demands. And and I always like to place as much responsibility, not not in a bad way, but just empower folks as much as possible with their choices and tell them that they do matter because they do. I mean, any individual, sure, of course not, but we have to operate as a, as a species. Now (laughs) we can't just operate as individuals. We have to start thinking as a species now, um, or, or we are in trouble because this is a problem that not one person is going to solve and not one government is going to solve to be honest.
0: Yeah. And as you're talking, I think one of the things That You're emphasizing, I mean, it comes from, we have to address the problem as individuals, communities, governments, business, uh, everybody has to be involved in different ways. And the other thing you said, like being aware of our behavior and what we do, I think, uh, and this is a statistic, I can't quote the exact statistic, but when we were all quarantined for the year and we weren't driving our cars, didn't the uh, air pollution just plummet? I mean, the air pollution got, yeah. And uh, it so and it works. It works. Have asked, only...
1: like it works exactly. Yeah. People have asked like, "What uh, is there hope?" And I think COVID, of all the bad things that came out of ho- COVID, or that are still coming out of COVID, <laughs> one of the good things was how resilient. I think everyone was amazed, scientists and and uh, even folks who had been studying those things for a long time, how resilient the world was. Like. We, you know, we've lost the species, and those things are not resilient but of of what we haven't killed yet, it was amazing how fast stuff um, bounced back and it was really heartening. It shows that what what collective action can do, and what I mean by that is that everybody doing the same thing, you know, and obviously and now I have to interrupt we have, 30, we have a minute left.
0: But. i we could continue this conversation, and I want oh, people yeah. to you know, uh, by the book the atlas of a changing climate and i've been talking to brian buma phd he's the author of the book he has a website that you can go to brian what is it so that that people can get more information about your work what you're doing and the book
1: yeah uh, i'd invite people to that time just flew by uh, Brianbuma.com. that's a b so b is in boy r-i-a-n and then b is in boy u-m-a.com Great.
0: thanks so much for being on the show today a really yeah, interesting topic. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, fun. thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.